My name is Matt, and I serve as one of the pastors here, and so, so good to have you here this morning. Um, as, as Emily said, especially those of you who are with us for the very first time, uh, we just so appreciate you uh, just having the courage to walk into an unknown place and to give it a try, and we trust that this morning that you will have an opportunity to hopefully connect with Jesus in a really special Way. Well, today you've caught us in a great week because we are starting this new series that we are calling, calling Rebuildable. And the heart uh, behind Rebuildable is, is simply this. Sadly, it is way, way too easy for us to convince each other that our world is a very broken place. It wouldn't, it wouldn't create a big struggle for me to stand up here and to convince you of the variety of things that face us as a nation and as a community that have us looking around at things that go, oh my goodness, where do we go from here? How do we recover from this? Broken families, hurting homes, divided races, crippling poverty, unwanted children, confusion, loneliness, addiction. It can all feel so overwhelming and beyond repair. And just consider the last 48 hours, unless you've been living under a rock, and if you are and you have room for me, let me know because I'd like to join you. But our nation has just shown us a great picture of, oh my goodness, what do we do now? Where do we go from here? How do we fix this? While a mega hurricane is making its way up the coastline of our nation, that news gets completely sidelined by the insanity of our election cycle. That's crazy. How do we fix it? I saw somebody tweet uh, this bumper sticker earlier. Uh, Giant Meteor 2016. <laughs> Just ended already. So, you know, there's other options that you can vote for and... Um, uh, I just thought that, was, thought that was great. But it's an undeniably crazy time. A time where it would be just so easy to be ruled by fear or become just so toxically cynical that we don't leave any room for hope. You see, what we believe as a church is that nothing is so broken in our world that our God cannot restore it. In fact, he loves to build and rebuild some of the most broken things, the things that we look at and feel like this is beyond repair. And not only does he love to rebuild and to restore and to redeem, I believe he absolutely loves to do it through us. But how? And so that's what this series is. It's a, it's a look at a man named Nehemiah, a man who God used to restore what seemed to be irreparable. And we trust that through these uh, number of weeks that Nehemiah will help us learn what it looks like to be God's rebuilders in our world. 
And so we're going to be in this series for the next uh, number of weeks uh, leading up to our baptism. And then we will uh, jump back in after the baptism week. And I'm going to be working with Kondo and we're going to be team teaching through this series. And we are so looking forward to doing that. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open it to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And you can just put your thumb in chapter one. Uh, We will get there in just a moment. If you don't have your Bible, we have the scripture on the screen for you. Uh, But just as a quick overview, the story of Nehemiah, it takes place in 444 BC. And this happened about a thousand years after the time of Moses and about 400 years before the time of Jesus. And we are looking in at the nation of Israel and the Jewish people and we find them in a very desperate and broken state. See, about 150 years prior to our story that we're going to start looking at today, in 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar, he goes in and he raids and he attacks Jerusalem and he absolutely levels and destroys the city. He destroys the temple of Solomon. He takes captive about two to three million people and brings them in exile back to Babylon. And in the process, he tears down the city walls and he burns the city Gates, leaving the city defenseless against future enemy attacks. And so when the Jews are deported to Babylon, they begin to make homes for themselves there. And some are raised to prominence, and we've read and we've heard about some of those stories. You've heard, I'm sure, of Daniel. Uh, Some of you have heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And of course, Queen Esther and her rise to power. Well, after about 70 years of being in captivity in Babylon, the Jewish people were given an opportunity to return to their homeland, the promised land as we know it. And out of some of the two to three million people who were brought out of Israel, brought out of Jerusalem, only about 50,000 decide to return, to return back to the promised land. It's a tiny, tiny percentage And so after this time, after this this, um, time of exile and some of the ones that have returned, we catch up to this story and the walls of the city in Jerusalem are still in rubble. For an ancient city in, in this time frame in the world, a city without walls is completely open and vulnerable to its enemies. They had no defense. They had no protection. They had no way to stop anyone from coming in. Anything of value in the unwalled city was probably going to be stolen. Those living in the unwalled city lived in this constant state of stress and tension, and they never knew when they might be attacked or brutalized again. For men in this time, they lived in this constant fear for their family, for their wives, for their children. And some of the ones who returned, they did the work of rebuilding the temple, but the temple could not be restored to its original glory because they weren't able to actually put anything of value in it because, again, they could just come back in and steal things out. And remember, this is the promised land, and we've talked about this before. This is the land flowing of milk and honey and great riches, and the crops are amazing, and yet all the surrounding cities and communities certainly appreciated that. And they waltzed in and they took advantage and helped themselves 
to whatever they wanted and just took the harvest out. So the Jewish people, they lived in constant distress, in constant disgrace, just bearing the title of survivors. Now, Nehemiah, he lived in Susa, the capital city of the Persians. And he lived at the citadel, which is the fortified palace of the Persian king. So right away, we know that Nehemiah is someone important living in the palace with the king of Persia. So that's where we're going to pick up our story today. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. So I'm going to read through this. And uh, then we will jump in to a few points of application. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekelah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven... The great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and you obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Few verses in chapter two, verse one. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of the king Artaxerxes, when the wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, "Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart." I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, "May the king live forever. Why should my face look?" Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Verse 4, the king said to me, what is it that you want? So a few things that I want to walk through in this passage. We find Nehemiah in this high position with access to King Artaxerxes. 
When his brother arrives, he wants to know how are things going back home? How are the people? How's our family? How are things going? And this right away is so interesting because it's highly unlikely that Nehemiah has ever actually been to Jerusalem, which is some 800 miles away. He was most likely born in captivity and, and raised as a slave, and Persia is his home. But something is in his heart that is already bent towards Jerusalem. He could probably live out his days in, in comfort and really never want for much of anything. I mean, how hard is it to be the wine guy for the king in the palace, right? And yet his heart is in tune with something that God is doing. And his heart isn't centered on himself and his own circumstances in his life. He is leaning in, wanting to know about others. And when he learns that things aren't going well, he is immediately broken over the news. He sits down as if he's too weak to sit. He weeps. He mourns. He fasts and he prays. Why? Why did he have such an emotional response? I believe because he internalizes this great, this news as a great injustice. I think he sees this and in his God-given design, he was made for this work of restoration and something in him just rises up, just naturally rises up. Because I believe brokenness often reveals passion. Brokenness often reveals passion. I worked with uh, Pastor Crawford Loritz in Atlanta, and he would often say, what causes you to pound the table and weep? What is this thing that so moves you, it just causes you to pound the table and weep? You can't shake it. It is deep on your heart, and you just need to get it out, and you need to do something about it. Pastor Bill Hybels calls it our holy discontent. It's the thing that when we look around and we see it, it just breaks us because we believe it should be different. No, actually, we believe it could be different. We believe it has to be different. Ephesians 2.10, a passage that we've talked about often, for we are God's workmanship, his masterpiece created anew in Christ Jesus to do the good things he planned for us long ago. God has wired us with things that will cause us to get a little worked up. Things that will cause us to be just a little discontent. Things that will stir us and that will move us to tears. And for Nehemiah, it was the news that his nation, his people, they were in this troubled, desperate place. And the bad state of the people and the bad state of the city and the walls are intimately connected, and he sees this connection. The neighborhood bullies are pressing in, and they're taking advantage of the defenseless city, and it tears up Nehemiah, and he has this deep burden for something that just seems so broken and so beyond any chance of repair. Now notice, he doesn't just grab up the squad and hit up the king's armory and just go hightail it back to Jerusalem and say, all right, let's do it. Let's show these guys. Let's just charge in and take over. No, he moves right into the season of prayer. Because a broken heart 
should lead us to a bended knee. A broken heart should lead us to a bended knee. And now, like many of us, I'm sure Nehemiah had some ideas. A, a vision that began to form thoughts of, we could do this, and, and what about this, and what if I did this? But rather than taking matters into his own hands, Nehemiah launches into a season of prayer. And not just any prayer. If you were with us back in the summer, we talked about this kind of prayer in our super mega epic summer series. This was a super mega epic kind of prayer. Nehemiah calls on God to do the things that only God can do. But he doesn't remove himself from the equation. He doesn't just put it on God. Hey, God, save the day. No, he, he, he joins in because Nehemiah is seeking huge things from the Lord, but he's humbly posturing himself in partnership with God. Let's take a look at his prayer again. His prayer starts by humbly acknowledging God and who he is. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you. As if Nehemiah is saying, you are God and I am not. You are good. You are for your children. You are for me. You are for your people. And God, we need you. God, please hear my prayer. I believe you've called me to do some things here, but I can't do this without you. Please hear my prayer. Verse 6. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave to your servant Moses. It's this confession, this humble, real, honest confession. God, we have made a mess of things. You told us, you warned us, you showed us the way. And yet we turned our backs when we knew better. We didn't obey. We are so sorry. Please, please forgive us. This is not a, I'm so sorry if anything I did or said offended you, lame apology. This is an acknowledgement and an ownership of sin. And what he does here is so good. I confess the sins that we, the Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. There's this corporate confession. We as a people, our nation, the whole tribe, we blew it. But then there's this personal ownership. It's not just them, but me. I have sinned. I have not obeyed your commands. I have failed. Oh, Lord, lead us to this kind of confession as a church and as a nation. What Nehemiah is leaning on is, is what we see in 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. 
And see, through this confession, Nehemiah starts this lean in that we continue to see in verse 8 towards remembering and recalling the promises of God. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. This is exactly what we talked about in this super mega epic prayer where we don't just lean on our own understanding, on our own thoughts, on the ways in which we see things, but we look through the scriptures and we lean on the promises of God. God has filled his word with promises over provision, over his presence, over the ways that he cares and he loves his children. And Nehemiah calls it out, Lord, remember what you said to Moses? You told us. If we were unfaithful, you would scatter us. But Lord, you also said that if we come back to you, if we would obey the commands, that you would bring back your exiled people. You said even from the farthest ends of the earth, you would rescue us. God, you said that, so please, please forgive us. Please bring us back into your presence. And finally, in verse 11, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was the cupbearer to the king. And here is where Nehemiah includes himself in the solution. Again, it's not just this prayer that says, God, would you just save the city? Would you just take care of what's going on over there? It's a prayer that says, God, I believe that you've given me something to do. And you have called me to this vision, this idea of restoring and uh, providing order and dignity and safety and protection to your people. I believe this is a work you have given me to do and I want to do it, but I need you. I can't do it without you. Please give your servant success today. Grant me favor in the presence of this man. Who's he asking God to grant favor with? King Artaxerxes. He's saying, God, you do the pieces that only you can do. Only you can redeem your people. Only you can restore a broken nation. Only you can rescue and return exiles. God, you please do the super mega epic work that only you can do. And God, I so believe in this vision of restoration. I trust you enough that I'm willing to literally put my neck on the line. And talk to King Artaxerxes about this vision. He's asking God, move in King Artaxerxes' heart so that I can approach him about all of this. You see, the cupbearer, it's not really customer tradition that he's just sort of kicking it with the king, you know? Hey, did you see last night's game? No, I got to catch the the highlights. Hey, can you hook me up with some good Merlot? Yeah, sure, no problem. Hold on. Yep, we're good. Here you go. You know, he's testing out, which makes me think, I think if I were a cupbearer, I'd be so tempted to be like, you know, let me try it. We're good. And then right as the king takes a sip, be like, oh, I'm not feeling so good. I don't, I don't think I'd survive, but it'd be hilarious. Um, you see, there's this strict order when it comes to serving the king. The king has enough going on in his mind and in his heart and the decisions that he has to make and just the weight that is on his shoulders and what it means to be the king. So his servants' jobs were to present the calmest, 
happiest, no-stress environment as possible. They were there to serve the king, to take care of his needs, to handle the details, protect him, watch, him, watch his back, and help him to relax. Not bum him out and ask him for favors. But if there's any doubt whether God answers prayers of the brokenhearted, let's look again at what he does in chapter 2. He will hear you. He will always answer you. In the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Several things here in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, Nehemiah starts off by saying, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, says in the month of Nisan, if you had your Old Testament Persian calendar out and available, you'd be able to see that this is four months that have passed. Four months from Nehemiah's initial receiving of this news, four months from the beginning of Nehemiah just being brokenhearted and just going to the Lord in prayer. He's been asking God to grant him favor with the king for four months. He's probably with the king every day just waiting for this moment and yet just continuing to pray, God, grant me favor. Do the work only you can do. And we're going to see in the coming weeks as the story rolls out that Nehemiah is just so prepared. He has a vision. He has a plan. The details he's started to pull together. And his vision is more than just an idea. He actually has developed a bit of a roadmap to see it through. But it all starts with this prayer. And then maybe one day as Nehemiah is serving the king, he's probably just in this state of just wondering, oh, Lord, is this ever going to happen? Is this thing even real? This vision, this heart, this thing that you've given me, this brokenness inside of me, did I just make it all up? I'm just so broken over my people, and yet I just keep praying this prayer, and it just doesn't feel like, wait, I'm sorry, King, what, what was that? Why am I sad? You see, the Lord answers his prayer. Chapter 2, verse 2, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And Nehemiah, he just goes for it and he opens up to the king. Hey, I'm sad and I'm broken because my people are in trouble. I'm here in this amazing palace and I'm safe and things are provided for and I'm serving you and I'm so grateful for that. But my people, my people, they are just vulnerable and they are hurting. And imagine at this point, he drops his head and his eyes close and he just waits for the hammer to drop because by the way, this king he is talking to is part of the very line and lineage of kingdoms that went in and conquered Jerusalem in the first place. And now he's standing before him saying, hey, remember what your people did to my people? Well, they are just broken. And it saddens me. And he's so out of line in terms of custom and tradition and what he's supposed to do. I'm sure he's just waiting to be banished or imprisoned or even executed. 
And then the answer comes. The king said to me, what is it that you want? Amazing. God answers Nehemiah's prayer. This vision, this burden, it suddenly has life. This thing that has so burdened Nehemiah, this heartache that he's been carrying for four months is about to be presented to the most powerful, influential man in the world. And by the way, spoiler alert, the amazing work that Nehemiah does in rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, it takes 52 days. The prayer, the churning, the holy discontent, four months. The work, 52 days. Isn't that amazing? And without the four months, I don't think Nehemiah would have been ready. Without that season of prayer, his heart may not have been in tune with God's heart and what God was wanting to do. He may not have found favor with the king. He could have easily, as we said before, just rushed into Jerusalem and taken matters into his own hands, totally unprepared, going without the king's blessing. But Nehemiah does some of the hardest and most faithful work behind the scenes for four months while he patiently waits for God to do the work that only he can do and grant him favor with the king. A bended knee prepares you for the faithful steps. A bended knee prepares you for the next faithful steps. So what about you? How is life going for you? I realize in a room this size, As you walk in here today, a variety of us are probably coming through these doors feeling a little bit like the Jewish people whose walls have been destroyed and the enemy is approaching in on all directions. You may be filled with sadness, you may be losing hope, and it may feel like just disaster and destruction are all around you. Maybe your marriage is struggling. Maybe your kids are just pushing you beyond your limits. Maybe you hate your job or maybe you're doubting the direction of the studies that you've chosen in school. Maybe you don't feel like you have anyone that really gets you or that you can call a true friend. You might be someone here today that is just being owned by an addiction And all the decisions you make are filtered through that addiction. Or maybe you're someone here today who just has debts closing in. And you're not sure how much longer you can stay financially afloat. I'd like to encourage you. First, you are not alone. You're not. If we had the ability to crank up the honesty meter to 100% and give everybody a moment with the microphone, I think you would be stunned to hear the number of people who do get you and do understand because they are sharing some of the very circumstances that feel like cannot be repaired in your life. And second, this isn't the end of your story. This is a season that you're in. This struggle is a season. And it may be a very long and very dark and very lonely season, but it does not have to be the final defining chapter of your story.
In the coming weeks, we are going to talk about what it looks like to develop a vision because I believe that's what we all need for our lives. We need to have a vision, something in which that we are believing and we are heading towards. But like Nehemiah, it is so critical that step one of our visions and our circumstances, our struggle, our brokenness, our dreams would be to boldly and powerfully approach God and seek his promises and his favor to be poured out over us. The other day, we were out as a family and we were running some errands. And uh, so we loaded up the old minivan and uh, we were just, you know, kind of cruising around town. In fact, we were right out here on um, Fisher uh, in front of the school and uh, driving down the road. And all of a sudden, there's a mouse on the windshield. No joke, okay? So we're driving, and, and as I think as I'm picking up speed going up the road, I think what happened, I think this mouse is kind of down like where the windshield meets the hood, you know, down by the windshield wipers. And I think as I start picking up speed, he starts to lose his grip. And so he kind of starts doing this like sliding, scurrying thing up the windshield, okay? And so at this point, everything moves into absolute slow motion, all right? I mean, I can see vividly his just claws just scratching away at the windshield and his sharp razor teeth just, you know, staring me down. And suddenly we are eyeball to eyeball in the windshield. And it's like we're just staring into each other's souls. And I screamed louder than all three of my kids combined. I mean, I absolutely freaked out, okay? Um, And so, you know, as he's scurrying, it's not like he just went up the windshield. The scurrying is now causing him to sort of go sideways. Have you ever been going down the road and you realize you need to clean your windshield? And so you turn on, you know, the windshield wiper fluid and the wipers, and then all of a sudden the fluid starts hitting you in the face because you left your window open? No, me neither. I've never done that. But anyway... That thought occurs to me in this moment of my window is open, that mouse is going sideways, I'm leaning this way, it's going that way, it is certainly going to wrap its way around the window, land on my face, and murder me. Like, there's no way I'm going to survive this whatsoever. I'm I'm a dead man. And so, fortunately for me and and my family, you know, the mouse shoots off, and For all the, you know, PETA fans that are listening, he landed on his feet and he scurried home and he's back with his family. He's all good. But um, I, you know, in my panic, you know, I have leaned this way because the mouse is, you know, heading towards me. So I'm leaning this way. And suddenly that's when I hear Erica say, Matt. Well, fortunately, as you know, right here out in front of the school, there's this extra turn lane. Well, I have fully entered the extra turn lane, and now I'm about to enter into people's front yards and plow over mailboxes. And so I just kind of quickly, you know, pull it back and recover and drive, you know, slowly and go get an EKG done on my heart just to test the damage that's been done. And we were fine, and we went along with our day. Life circumstances have this way of impairing our vision. They get right up in our face. Eyeball to eyeball, and we lose sight of everything else that's going on around us. And we convince ourselves we are not going to make it. We see what we want to see, and we see what we are looking for, and we often miss reality, and we miss the truth 
And we are so distracted by our circumstances staring us back in the face that the only thing that's important is the thing that's right there in front of us. You see, prayer is the thing that keeps us looking. It keeps our spiritual eyes open and our heads up to keep our radar up. Prayer is the thing that keeps the burden close to our heart. Prayer keeps us on the lookout for what God is doing and his movement and his intervention. It puts us in tune with his heart and allows us to see even the subtle ways he is shifting and changing the horizon. Nehemiah spent four months praying. And when the king says, what is up with you? He sees God has certainly moved. God has intervened. This is the moment of favor that I've been asking for. And he's able to boldly lean in. See the amazing thing about this story and this, this whole book. There is no major like, aha, miracle. There's no parting of the Red Sea. There's no crossing of the Jordan. No one raises from the dead. There's just a story of a guy who commits himself to faithfulness and partnering with God and just doing this unbelievable work of prayer to connect and be in tune with God's heart that launches this vision and story of restoration. When we commit our vision and our circumstances to the Lord in prayer, we will have our eyes and our hearts open to see him doing the work that only he can do, which in turn leads us and encourages us to take the next bold and faithful steps forward. So the marriage you're barely surviving, it can actually be turned into a thriving model of God's original design that flies in the face of the odds. The children that are just pushing you beyond your limits, they can actually be turned into some of your greatest work and your privilege of raising up the next generation. The addiction that owns you can just become the dragon that you slay that gives you the platform to share with others to help spare them from some of the pain that you've experienced. The job that you hate can become the thing and the place and the environment where you can pour the love of Jesus into the lives of others. The debt that is just swallowing you up whole can be the thing that is turned around to just unbelievable, abundant resources that you can utilize to become a kingdom builder with your finances. Whatever the circumstance may be, no matter how broken it feels, no matter how messed up, no matter how beyond repair, it can be restored and rebuilt to something completely new and beautiful through the power of God and the grace of God of Jesus. And for us as a church, we want to corporately lean into what it means to partner with God in the midst of some of the broken and desperate areas and places that exist in our own backyard. And that's the point of our love ops and our love blitz. Just for example, speaking with our friends at DCS this week, we currently have 80 children in our county who are being cared for through the foster system. Approximately 75% of those Cases involve some form of substance abuse. There's currently a rising trend right now for infants who are being born drug exposed. In August and September alone, there were 10 
babies born in our county who have open cases because they were born with drugs in their system. In September, our DCS caseworkers conducted 112 assessments from reports that came in on possible abuse or neglect. We know through our partnership with the school system that almost 50% of the students in our county participate in the assisted or free lunch program because their families do not have the resources they need to provide everything they need for their families. Based on state reports, there are approximately 10 babies per month aborted from our county. In Kosciuszko County, there are close to 2,500 single-parent homes. Last year alone, there were over 6,100 people who needed assistance through food stamps. Our county has over a 10% adult illiteracy rate, and 20% of our adults can only read at a fifth grade level. Over 6,400 people reported last year that they are divorced or legally separated. And Kosciuszko County has been one of the top three counties in the state of Indiana for methamphetamine production and arrests over the last several years. And on top of all of that and the number of other stats and information that I could lay out, we know that out of the 77,000 people in our county, there are 50,000 people who do not claim a church home or any sort of affiliation or relationship with Jesus. And we exist to invite everyone everywhere to life in Christ. The broken, the hurting, the desperate, the needy. We exist to welcome them in and point them to Jesus. And when I study those stats and some of the other information that's available to us, I'm moved and I'm broken by what I read and what I hear and what I see. And hopefully some of those statistics have moved you. And maybe it's not some of the things I shared. Maybe it's other pieces of the story that you know that you could come up and share. And you could say, this is the thing that causes me to pound the table and weep. This is the thing in our area that is just absolutely wrecking my heart. And like Nehemiah, we want to be broken over the suffering and pain of our community. And we want to accept the invitation that has been given to us to partner with Jesus to be rebuilders. Now, over the next months, we want to lean into Love Blitz, and this is our opportunity to serve and to be generous with our community. And again, like Nehemiah, we want to start with prayer. So next Sunday, when we officially kick off the Love Blitz, we are going to send out groups of people into our community, and this is something that you can sign up for, to just do prayer walks throughout the community. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be walking around just looking uh, for people and opportunities that we can just be praying for. So that we can get to know our neighbors, not just as statistics and things on a report, but names and faces and people that we can begin to truly care about. And throughout the Blitz, there'll be several more times that we will send people out to do this. And we believe this is the first and the greatest thing we can do for our county. Now, I know this intimidates the snot out of some of us, good. Gives you something to pray about this week. And ask God that he would build in you this boldness and this courage to join him in what it means to develop a vision over things that feel just way too broken 
for us to repair and invite him in. God, please do the work only you can do. So in fact, today, I know we are uh, out of time. I'm just gonna ask you to just hang tight with me for just a few minutes because I wanna do one thing just to help us get warmed up for this season of prayer and for this time. I'm gonna ask you in a moment to stand up and I want you to find someone close to you, the person that you say, I don't know who this person is. I, I don't really know them very well. And I want you to go up and I want you to introduce yourself. You say, hi, my name is. Tell them how long you've been at Mission Point. And then ask, how can I pray for you today? And then you can take turns and do the reverse. Now, we're going to have to put the clamps on some of our extroverted people. We don't have time to go into big stories. So you need like a 20 to 30 second bottom line. This is what I need prayer for. And I want you to pray for each other. Now, for those of you that I've just lost, the mouse is not going to make its way into the window and kill you. You're going to survive this just fine. In fact, I believe you will be so moved by this and the opportunity to go pray in our community. It's going to be one of the most significant things you're a part of this year. If you are just sitting here and you're like, there's no way I can do this, or you're somebody that says, I, I, I don't even know about Jesus. I'm not even sure about God. I, I, I can't be praying for people. Just sit in your seat. You can just stay seated and just relax and just hang out for a couple minutes. And then I'll pray to close us all and to dismiss us all. So go ahead, stand up, find somebody quickly, introduce yourself, pray for each other. Go for it. Father God, you are so good. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the love that you have for us as your children. God, we need you. We need you to do the work that only you can do in our lives, in our hearts, in our stories, in the stories of our community, and in the story of the world around us. Father, please forgive us of our sins. Forgive us for the ways that we have turned our backs on you. Forgive us for the ways that we have not trusted you. Father, forgive me for the many times that I struggle and I, I doubt and I take matters into my own hands. God, we need you. We need you to heal us, to change us, to draw us back to yourself. So God, we lean on your promises and ask that you would do that. Lord, as we open the doors to this love blitz into our county, God, we know that you are already going ahead of us. And so Lord, lead us to the divine appointments that you have set up for us. Help us to be so bold and so uh, absolutely generous and that we would just be willing to pour ourselves out so that others may experience you. Be with us as we go from here today. In Christ's name, amen.